You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to the final part of this uh, part, part, part six, part five, part six, part seven, the, the Lupin, uh, Asan Lupin. Yeah, so this is the very last part of this. I don't know what we're doing next. I think it might be more Asalupal. Or we might find something that's a little bit more pulpy. Here we go, right now. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 8. The Black Pearl. A violent ringing of the bell awakened the concierge of number 9, Avenue Hoche. She pulled the door-string, grumbling. I thought everybody was in. It must be three o'clock. Perhaps it is someone for the doctor, muttered her husband. Third floor left, but the doctor won't go out at night. He must go tonight. The visitor entered the vestibule, ascended to the first floor, the second, the third, and without stopping at the doctor's door, he continued to the fifth floor. There he tried two keys. One of them fitted the lock. Ah, oh, good, he muttered. That simplifies the business wonderfully. But before I commence work, I had better arrange for my retreat. Let me see. Have I had sufficient time to rouse the doctor and be dismissed by him? Not yet. A few minutes more. At the end of ten minutes, he descended the stairs, grumbling noisily about the doctor. The concierge opened the door for him and heard it click behind him. But the door did not lock, as the man had quickly inserted a piece of iron in the lock in such a manner that the bolt could not enter. Then, quietly, he entered the house again, unknown to the concierge. In case of alarm, his retreat was assured. Noiselessly, he ascended to the fifth floor once more. In the antechamber, by the light of his electric lantern, he placed his hat and overcoat on one of the chairs, took a seat on another, and covered his heavy shoes with felt slippers. Oof! Here I am! And how simple it was! I wonder why more people do not adopt the profitable and pleasant occupation of burglar. With a little care and reflection it becomes a most delightful profession. Not too quiet and monotonous, of course, as it would then become wearisome. He unfolded a detailed plan of the apartment. Let me commence by locating myself. Here I see the vestibule in which I am sitting. On the street front, the drawing room, the boudoir and dining room. Useless to waste any time there, as it appears that the Countess has a deplorable taste. Not a biblo of any value. Now let's get down to business. Ah, here is a corridor. It must lead to the bedchambers. At a distance of three meters, I should come to the door of the wardrobe closet which connects with the chamber of the countess. He folded his plan, extinguished his lantern, and proceeded down the corridor, counting his distance thus. One meter, two meters, three meters. Here is the door. Oh, Dieu, how easy it is! Only a small, simple bolt now separates me from the chamber and I know that the bolt is located exactly one meter forty-three centimeters from the floor, so that thanks to a small incision I am about to make, I can soon get rid of the bolt. He drew from his pocket the necessary instruments. Then the following idea occurred to him. Suppose by chance the door is not bolted. I will try it first. He turned the knob, and the door opened. "'My brave Lupin, surely fortune favours you. "'What's to be done now? "'You know the situation of the rooms. "'You know the place in which the Countess hides the black pearl. "'Therefore, in order to secure the black pearl, "'you have simply to be more silent than silence, "'more invisible than darkness itself.' "'Arsène Lupin was employed fully a half-hour "'in opening the second door, "'a glass door that led to the Countess's bedchamber.' but he accomplished it with so much skill and precaution that even had the countess been awake, she would not have heard the slightest sound. According to the plan of the rooms that he holds, he has merely to pass around a reclining chair, and beyond that a small table close to the bed. On the table there was a box of letter-paper, 
and the black pearl was concealed in that box. He stooped and crept cautiously over the carpet, following the outlines of the reclining chair. When he reached the extremity of it, he stopped in order to repress the throbbing of his heart. Although he was not moved by any sense of fear, he found it impossible to overcome the nervous anxiety that one usually feels in the midst of profound silence. That circumstance astonished him, because he had passed through many more solemn moments without the slightest trace of emotion. No danger threatened him. Then why did his heart throb like an alarm bell? Was it that sleeping woman who affected him? Was it the proximity of another pulsating heart? He listened and thought he could discern the rhythmical breathing of a person asleep. It gave him confidence, like the presence of a friend. He sought and found the armchair, then, by slow, cautious movements, advanced toward the table, feeling ahead of him with outstretched arm. His right had touched one of the feet of the table. Ah! Now he had simply to rise, take the pearl, and escape. That was fortunate, as his heart was leaping in his breast like a wild beast, and made so much noise that he feared it would waken the countess. By a powerful effort of the will, he subdued the wild throbbing of his heart, and was about to rise from the floor when his left hand encountered, lying on the floor, an object which he recognized as a candlestick, an overturned candlestick. A moment later, his hand encountered another object, a clock, one of those small traveling clocks covered with leather. Well, what had happened? He could not understand. That candlestick, that clock. Why were those articles not in their accustomed places? Ah, oh, what had happened in the dread silence of the night? Suddenly a cry escaped him. He had touched, oh, some strange, unutterable thing. No, no, he thought, it cannot be. It is some fancy of my excited brain. For twenty seconds, thirty seconds, he remained motionless, terrified, his forehead bathed with perspiration, and his fingers still retained the sensation of that dreadful contact. Making a desperate effort, he ventured to extend his arm again. Once more his hand encountered that strange, unutterable thing. He felt it. He must feel it and find out what it is. He found that it was hair, human hair, and a human face, and that face was cold, almost icy. However frightful the circumstances may be, a man like Arsène Lupin controls himself and commands the situation as soon as he learns what it is. So Arsène Lupin quickly brought his lantern into use. A woman was lying before him, covered with blood. Her neck and shoulders were covered with gaping wounds. He leaned over her and made a closer examination. She was dead. Dead? dead, he repeated with a bewildered air. He stared at those fixed eyes, that grim mouth, that livid flesh, and that blood, all that blood which had flowed over the carpet and congealed there in thick black spots. He arose and turned on the electric lights. Then he beheld all the marks of a desperate struggle. The bed was in a state of great disorder. On the floor, the candlestick and the clock, with the hands pointing to twenty minutes after eleven. Then, further away, an overturned chair, and everywhere there was blood, spots of blood and pools of blood. And the black pearl? he murmured. The box of letter paper was in its place. He opened it eagerly. The jewel case was there, but it was empty. Victor! he muttered. You boasted of your good fortune much too soon, my friend Lupin. With the countess lying cold and dead and the black pearl vanished, the situation is anything but pleasant. Get out of here as soon as you can, or you may get into serious trouble. Yet he did not move. Get out of here? Yes, of course. Any person would, except Arsène Lupin. He has something better to do. Now, to proceed in an orderly way, at all events, you have a clear conscience. Let us suppose that you are the commissary of police, 
and that you are proceeding to make an inquiry concerning this affair. Yes, but in order to do that, I require a clearer brain. Mine is muddled like a ragout. He tumbled into an armchair, with his clenched hands pressed against his burning forehead. The murder of the Avenue Hoche is one of those which have recently surprised and puzzled the Parisian public, and certainly I should never have mentioned the affair if the veil of mystery had not been removed by Arsène Lupin himself. No one knew the exact truth of the case. Who did not know, from having met her in the Bois, the fair Leotine Zalti, the once famous cantatrice, wife and widow of the Count d'Andiot, the Zalti, whose luxury dazzled all Paris some twenty years ago, the Zalti who acquired a European reputation for the magnificence of her diamonds and pearls. It was said that she wore upon her shoulders the capital of several banking-houses and the gold-mines of numerous Australian companies. Skilful jewellers worked for Zalti as they had formerly wrought for kings and queens. And who does not remember the catastrophe in which all that wealth was swallowed up? Of all that marvellous collection, nothing remained except the famous black pearl. The black pearl, that is to say, a fortune, if she had wished to part with it. But she preferred to keep it, to live in a commonplace apartment with her companion, her cook, and a manservant, rather than sell that inestimable jewel. There was a reason for it, a reason she was not afraid to disclose. The black pearl was the gift of an emperor. Almost ruined and reduced to the most mediocre existence, she remained faithful to the companion of her happy and brilliant youth. The black pearl never left her possession. She wore it during the day, and at night concealed it in a place known to her alone. All these facts, being republished in the columns of the public press, served to stimulate curiosity, and strange to say, but quite obvious to those who have the key to the mystery, the arrest of the presumed assassin only complicated the question and prolonged the excitement. Two days later, the newspapers published the following item. Information has reached us of the arrest of Victor Danègre, the servant of the Countess d'Andiot. The evidence against him is clear and convincing. On the silken sleeve of his liveried waistcoat, which Chief Detective Dudouis found in his garret between the mattresses of his bed, several spots of blood were discovered. In addition, a cloth-covered button was missing from that garment, and this button was found beneath the bed of the victim. It is supposed that after dinner, in place of going to his own room, Danègre slipped into the wardrobe closet, and through the glass door had seen the countess hide the precious black pearl. This is simply a theory as yet unverified by any evidence. There is also another obscure point. At seven o'clock in the morning, Danègre went to the tobacco shop on the boulevard de Courcelles. The concierge and the shopkeeper both affirm this fact. On the other hand, the countess's companion and cook, who sleep at the end of the hall, both declare that when they arose at eight o'clock, the door of the antechamber and the door of the kitchen were locked. These two persons have been in the service of the countess for twenty years, and are above suspicion. The question is, how did Danègre leave the apartment? Did he have another key? These are matters that the police will investigate. As a matter of fact, the police investigation threw no light on the mystery. It was learned that Victor Danègre was a dangerous criminal, a drunkard and a debauchee. But as they proceeded with the investigation, the mystery deepened and new complications arose. In the first place, a young woman, Mademoiselle de Saint-Clèves, the cousin and sole heiress of the Countess, declared that the Countess, a month before her death, had written a letter to her, and in it described the manner in which the black pearl was concealed. The letter disappeared the day after she received it. Who had stolen it? Again the concierge related how she had opened the door for a person who had inquired for Dr. Arel. On being questioned, the doctor testified that no one had rung his bell. Then who was that person? An accomplice? The theory of an accomplice was thereupon adopted by the press and public, and also by Ganimard, the famous detective. Lupin is at the bottom of this affair, he said to the judge. Bah! exclaimed the judge. 
You have Lupin on the brain. You see him everywhere. I see him everywhere because he is everywhere. Say rather that you see him every time you encounter something you cannot explain. Besides, you overlook the fact that the crime was committed at twenty minutes past eleven in the evening, as is shown by the clock, while the nocturnal visit, mentioned by the concierge, occurred at three o'clock in the morning. Officers of the law frequently form a hasty conviction as to the guilt of a suspected person, and then distort all subsequent discoveries to conform to their established theory. The deplorable antecedents of Victor Danègre, habitual criminal, drunkard and rake, influenced the judge, and despite the fact that nothing new was discovered in cooperation of the early clues, his official opinion remained firm and unshaken. He closed his investigation, and a few weeks later the trial commenced. It proved to be slow and tedious. The judge was listless, and the public prosecutor presented the case in a careless manner. Under those circumstances, Danègre's counsel had an easy task. He pointed out the defects and inconsistencies of the case for the prosecution, and argued that the evidence was quite insufficient to convict the accused. Who had made the key, the indispensable key without which Danègre, on leaving the apartment, could not have locked the door behind him? Who had ever seen such a key, and what had become of it? Who had seen the assassin's knife, and where is it now? In any event, argued the prisoner's counsel, the prosecution must prove beyond any reasonable doubt that the prisoner committed the murder. The prosecution must show that the mysterious individual who entered the house at three o'clock in the morning is not the guilty party. To be sure, the clock indicated eleven o'clock. But what of that? I contend that proves nothing. The assassin could turn the hands of the clock to any hour he pleased, and thus deceive us in regard to the exact hour of the crime. Victor Danègre was acquitted. He left the prison on Friday about dusk in the evening, weak and depressed by his six months' imprisonment. The inquisition, the solitude, the trial, the deliberations of the jury combined to fill him with a nervous fear. At night he had been afflicted with terrible nightmares and haunted by weird visions of the scaffold. He was a mental and physical wreck. Under the assumed name of Anatole Dufour, he rented a small room on the heights of Montmartre and lived by doing odd jobs wherever he could find them. He led a pitiful existence. Three times he obtained regular employment, only to be recognized and then discharged. Sometimes he had an idea that men were following him, detectives no doubt, who were seeking to trap and denounce him. He could almost feel the strong hand of the law clutching him by the collar. One evening, as he was eating his dinner at a neighboring restaurant, a man entered and took a seat at the same table. He was a person about forty years of age, and wore a frock coat of doubtful cleanliness. He ordered soup, vegetables, and a bottle of wine. After he had finished his soup, he turned his eyes on Danègre and gazed at him intently. Danègre winced. He was certain that this was one of the men who had been following him for several weeks. What did he want? Danègre tried to rise, but failed. His limbs refused to support him. The man poured himself a glass of wine and then filled Danègre's glass. The man raised his glass and said, To your health, Victor Danègre. Victor startled in alarm and stammered, I, I, no, no, I swear to you. You will swear what? That you are not yourself? The servant of the countess? What servant? My name is Dufour. Ask the proprietor. Yes, Anatole Dufour to the proprietor of this restaurant, but Victor Danègre to the officers of the law. Not true. Someone has lied to you. The newcomer took a card from his pocket and handed it to Victor, who read on it, Grimaudin, ex-inspector of the detective force, private business transacted. Victor shuddered as he said, You are connected with the police? No, not now, but I have a liking for the business, and I continue to work at it in a manner more profitable. From time to time I strike upon a golden opportunity, such as your case presents. My case? 
"'Yes, yours. "'I assure you it is a most promising affair, "'provided you are inclined to be reasonable.' "'But if I am not reasonable?' "'Oh, my good fellow, "'you are not in a position to refuse me anything I may ask.' "'What that is it you want?' stammered Victor, fearfully. "'Well, I will inform you in a few words. "'I am sent by Mademoiselle de Saint-Clèves, "'the heiress of the Countess d'Andillot.' "'What for?' "'To recover the black pearl.' "'Black pearl? "'That you stole?' "'But I haven't got it.' "'You have it.' "'If I had, then I would be the assassin.' "'You are the assassin.' Danègre showed a forced smile. "'Fortunately for me, monsieur, the Assise Court was not of your opinion. The jury returned a unanimous verdict of acquittal, and when a man has a clear conscience and twelve good men in his favour, The ex-inspector seized him by the arm and said, "'No fine phrases, my boy. Now listen to me, and weigh my words carefully. You will find they are worthy of your consideration.' Now, Daneg, three weeks before the murder, you abstracted the cook's key to the servant's door, and had a duplicate key made by a locksmith named Outard, 244 Rue Oberkampf. "'It's a lie! It's a lie!' growled Victor. "'No person has seen that key. There is no such key!' "'Here it is.' After a silence, Grimaudin continued, you killed the countess with a knife purchased by you at the Bazaar de la République on the same day as you ordered the duplicate key. It has a triangular blade with a groove running from end to end. That is all nonsense. You are simply guessing at something you don't know. No one ever saw the knife. Here it is. Victor Danègre recoiled. The ex-inspector continued. There are some spots of rust upon it. Shall I tell you how they came there? Well, you have a key and a knife. Who can prove that they belong to me? The locksmith and the clerk from whom you bought the knife. I have already refreshed their memories, and when you confront them, they cannot fail to recognize them. His speech was dry and hard, with a tone of firmness and precision. Danègre was trembling with fear, and yet he struggled desperately to maintain an air of indifference. Is that all the evidence you have? Oh, no, not at all. I have plenty more. For instance, after the crime, you went out the same way you had entered. But in the centre of the wardrobe room, being seized by some sudden fear, you leaned against the wall for support. How do you know that? No one could know such a thing, argued the desperate man. The police know nothing about it, of course. They never think of lighting a candle and examining the walls. But if they had done so, they would have found on the white plaster a faint red spot, quite distinct, however, to trace it in the imprint of your thumb which you had pressed against the wall while it was wet with blood. Now, as you are well aware, under the Bertillon system, thumb marks are one of the principal means of identification." Victor Danègue was livid. Great drops of perspiration rolled down his face and fell upon the table. He gazed with a wild look at the strange man who had narrated the story of his crime as faithfully as if he had been an invisible witness to it. Overcome and powerless, Victor bowed his head. He felt that it was useless to struggle against this marvellous man. So he said, "'How much will you give me if I give you the pearl?' Nothing. <laughs> you are joking. Or do you mean that I should give you an article worth thousands and hundreds of thousands and get nothing in return? You will get your life. Is that nothing? The unfortunate man shuddered. Then Grimaudin added in a milder tone, Come, Daneg, that pearl has no value in your hands. It is quite impossible for you to sell it. So what is the use of your keeping it? There are pawnbrokers, and some day I will be able to get something for it. But that day may be too late. Why? Because by that time you may be in the hands of the police, and with the evidence that I can furnish, the knife, the key, the thumb mark, 
What will become of you? Victor rested his head on his hands and reflected. He felt that he was lost, irremediably lost, and at the same time a sense of weariness and oppression overcame him. He murmured faintly, When must I give it to you? Tonight, within an hour. If I refuse? If you refuse, I shall post this letter to the procureur of the Republic, in which letter Mademoiselle de Saint-Cleve denounces you as the assassin. The Nègre poured out two glasses of wine, which he drank in rapid succession, then rising, said, Pay the bill and let us go. I have had enough of the cursed affair. Night had fallen. The two men walked down the Rue Le Pic and followed the exterior boulevards in the direction of the Place de l'Étoile. They pursued their way in silence. Victor had a stooping carriage and a dejected face. When they reached the Parc Monceau, he said, We are near the house. Parbleu! You only left the house once before your arrest, and that was to go to the tobacco shop. Here it is, said Daneg in a dull voice. They passed along the garden wall of the countess's house, and crossed a street on a corner of which stood the tobacco shop. A few steps further on, Daneg stopped. His limbs shook beneath him, and he sank to a bench. Well, what now? demanded his companion. It is there. Where? Come now, no nonsense. There, in front of us. Where? Between two paving stones. Which? Look for it. Which stones? Victor made no reply. Ah, I see, exclaimed Grimaudin. You want me to pay for the information. No, but I am afraid I will starve to death. So, that is why you hesitate. Well, I'll not be hard on you. How much do you want? Enough to buy a steerage pass to America. All right. And a hundred francs to keep me until I get work there. You shall have two hundred. Now speak. Count the paving stones to the right from the sewer hole. The pearl is in between the twelfth and thirteenth. In the gutter... Yes, close to the sidewalk. Grimaudin glanced around to see if anyone were looking. Some tramcars and pedestrians were passing, but they will not suspect anything. He opened his pocket knife and thrust it between the twelfth and thirteenth stones. And if it is not there, he said to Victor, it must be there, unless someone saw me stoop down and hide it. Could it be possible that the black pearl had been cast into the mud and filth of the gutter to be picked up by the first comer? The black pearl! A fortune! How far down, he asked. About ten centimeters. He dug up the wet earth. The point of his knife struck something. He enlarged the hole with his finger. Then he abstracted the black pearl from its filthy hiding place. Good. Here are your two hundred francs. I will send you the ticket for America. On the following day, this article was published in the Echo de France and was copied by the leading newspapers throughout the world. Yesterday, the famous black pearl came into the possession of Arsène Lupin, who recovered it from the murderer of the Countess d'Andiot. In a short time, facsimiles of that precious jewel will be exhibited in London, St. Petersburg, Calcutta, Buenos Aires, and New York. Arsène Lupin will be pleased to consider all propositions submitted to him through his agents. And that is how crime is always punished and virtue rewarded, said Arsène Lupin, after he had told me the foregoing history of the Black Pearl. And that is how you, under the assumed name of Grimaudin, ex-inspector of detectives, were chosen by fate to deprive the criminal of the benefit of his crime. Exactly, and I confess that the affair gives me infinite satisfaction and pride. The forty minutes that I passed in the apartment of the Countess d'Andiot after learning of her death were the most thrilling and absorbing moments of my life. In those forty minutes, involved as I was in a most dangerous plight, 
I calmly studied the scene of the murder and reached the conclusion that the crime must have been committed by one of the house servants. I also decided that, in order to get the pearl, that servant must be arrested, and so I left the wainscoat button. It was necessary also for me to hold some convincing evidence of his guilt, so I carried away the knife which I found upon the floor and the key which I found in the lock. I closed and locked the door, and erased the finger-marks from the plaster in the wardrobe closet. In my opinion, that was one of those flashes... Of genius, I said, interrupting. Of genius, if you wish. But, I flatter myself, it would not have occurred to the average mortal to frame instantly the two elements of the problem, an arrest and an acquittal to make use of the formidable machinery of the law to crush and humble my victim and reduce him to a condition in which, when free, he would be certain to fall into the trap I was laying for him. Poor devil! Poor devil, do you say? Victor Danègue, the assassin? He might have descended to the lowest depths of vice and crime if he had retained the black pearl. Now he lives. Think of that. Victor Danègue is alive." and you have the black pearl. He took it out of one of the secret pockets of his wallet, examined it, gazed at it tenderly, and caressed it with loving fingers, and sighed as he said, What cold Russian prince, what vain and foolish Raja may some day possess this priceless treasure? Or perhaps some American millionaire is destined to become the owner of this morsel of exquisite beauty that once adorned the fair bosom of Leontine Zalti, the Countess d'Andio. End of chapter 8 Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to uh, the Gentleman uh, Thief, uh, Lupin, uh, Extraordinary Tales of, I can't remember which one this is. Thank you so much for listening to Radio Free Oleander, Oleander Book Club, and everything else we've got going on. If you've listened in the past, thank you. If you want to go in the archives and check out what we have, thank you again. And again, why don't you check out our shop over at pgttcm.com and find out what we've got going on there. Not a lot of new shirts or posters or anything like that, but we do have some stuff from the past that you might like, so check that stuff out, and we are working on stuff. Here we go with more Arsène Lupin. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 9. Sherlock Holmes Arrives Too Late, Part 1. It is really remarkable, Valmont, what a close resemblance you bear to Arsène Lupin. How do you know? Oh, like everyone else, from photographs, no two of which are alike, but each of them leaves the impression of a face, something like yours. Horace Valmont displayed some vexation. Quite so, my dear Devan, and believe me, you are not the first one who has noticed it. It is so striking, persisted Devan, that if you had not been recommended to me by my cousin d'Estevan, and if you were not the celebrated artist whose beautiful marine views I so admire, I have no doubt I should have warned the police of your presence in Dieppe. This sally was greeted with an outburst of laughter. The large dining-hall of the Chateau de Tibermenil contained on this occasion, besides Valmont, the following guests. Father Gelly, the parish priest, and a dozen officers whose regiments were quartered in the vicinity and who had accepted the invitation of the banker Georges Devan and his mother. One of the officers then remarked, I understand that an exact description of Arsène Lupin has been furnished to all the police along this coast since his daring exploit on the Paris Havre Express. I suppose so, said Devan. That was three months ago, and a week later I made the acquaintance of our friend Valmont at the casino, and since then he has honoured me with several visits, an agreeable preamble to a more serious visit that he will pay me one of these days, or rather one of these nights. This speech evoked another round of laughter, and the guests then passed into the ancient Hall of the Guards, a vast room with a high ceiling which occupied the entire lower part of the Tour Guillaume, William's Tower, and wherein Georges de Vannes had collected the incomparable treasures which the lords of Tibermenil had accumulated through many centuries. 
It contained ancient chests, credences, andirons, and chandeliers. The stone walls were overhung with magnificent tapestries. The deep embrasures of the four windows were furnished with benches, and the Gothic windows were composed of small panes of colored glass set in a leaden frame. Between the door and the window to the left stood an immense bookcase of Renaissance style, on the pediment of which, in letters of gold, was the word Tibermenil, and below it the proud family device, Fais ce que veux, do what thou wishest. When the guests had lighted their cigars, Devanne resumed the conversation. And remember, Velmont, you have no time to lose. In fact, tonight is the last chance you will have. How so? asked the painter, who appeared to regard the affair as a joke. Devanne was about to reply when his mother mentioned to him to keep silent, but the excitement of the occasion, and a desire to interest his guests, urged him to speak. Bah! he murmured. I can tell it now. It won't do any harm. The guests drew closer, and he commenced to speak with the satisfied air of a man who has an important announcement to make. Tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock, Sherlock Holmes, the famous English detective, for whom such a thing as mystery does not exist, Sherlock Holmes, the most remarkable solver of enigmas the world has ever known, that marvellous man who would seem to be the creation of a romantic novelist, Sherlock Holmes will be my guest. Immediately, Devanne was the target of numerous eager questions. Is Sherlock Holmes really come? The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 9. Sherlock Holmes Arrives Too Late. Part 2. As soon as M. Devanne was informed of the pillage of his castle, he said to himself, it was Velmont who did it, and Velmont is Arsène Lupin. That theory explained everything, and there was no other plausible explanation. And yet the idea seemed preposterous. It was ridiculous to suppose that Velmont was anyone else than Velmont, the famous artist, and clubfellow of his cousin Estevan. So when the captain of the gendarme arrived to investigate the affair, Devanne did not even think of mentioning his absurd theory. Throughout the forenoon, there was a lively commotion at the castle. The gendarmes, the local police, the chief of police from Dieppe, the villagers, all circulated to and fro in the halls, examining every nook and corner that was open to their inspection. The approach of the maneuvering troops, the rattling fire of the musketry, added to the picturesque character of the scene. The preliminary search furnished no clue. Neither the doors nor windows showed any signs of having been disturbed. Consequently, the removal of the goods must have been effected by means of the secret passage. Yet there were no indications of footsteps on the floor, nor any unusual marks upon the walls. Their investigations revealed, however, one curious fact that denoted the whimsical character of Arsène Lupin. The famous chronique of the 16th century had been restored to its accustomed place in the library, and beside it there was a similar book, which was none other than the volume stolen from the National Library. At eleven o'clock the military officers arrived. The van welcomed them with his usual gaiety, for no matter how much chagrin he might suffer from the loss of his artistic treasures, his great wealth enabled him to bear his loss philosophically. His guests, Monsieur and Madame d'Androle and Miss Nelly, were introduced, and it was then noticed that one of the expected guests had not arrived. It was Horace Velmont. Would he come? His absence had awakened the suspicions of Monsieur Devanne. But at twelve o'clock he arrived. Devanne exclaimed, "'Ah, oh, here you are!' "'Why, am I not punctual?' asked Velmont. Yes, and I am surprised that you are, after such a busy night. I suppose you know the news. What news? You have robbed the castle. <laughs> Nonsense, exclaimed Velmont, smiling. Exactly as I predicted. But first escort Miss Underdown to the dining-room. Mademoiselle, allow me. He stopped, as he remarked the extreme agitation of the young girl. Then, recalling the incident, he said, "'Ah, of 
course you met Arsène Lupin on the steamer before his arrest, and you are astonished at the resemblance. Is that it? She did not reply. Valmont stood before her, smiling. He bowed. She took his proffered arm. He escorted her to her place, and took his seat opposite her. During the breakfast, the conversation related exclusively to Arsène Lupin, the stolen goods, the secret passage, and Sherlock Holmes. It was only at the close of the repast, when the conversation had drifted to other subjects, that Velmont took any part in it. Then he was by turns amusing and grave, talkative and pensive, and all his remarks seemed to be directed to the young girl. But she, quite absorbed, did not appear to hear them. Coffee was served on the terrace overlooking the court of honour and the flower garden in front of the principal façade. The regimental band played on the lawn, and scores of soldiers and peasants wandered through the park. Miss Nelly had not forgotten for one moment Lupin's solemn promise, "'Tomorrow, at three o'clock, everything will be returned.' At three o'clock, and the hands of the great clock in the right wing of the castle now marked twenty minutes to three. In spite of herself, her eyes wandered to the clock every minute. She also watched Velmont, who was calmly swinging to and fro in a comfortable rocking chair. Ten minutes to three. Five minutes to three. Nelly was impatient and anxious. Was it possible that Arsène Lupin would carry out his promise at the appointed hour, when the castle, the courtyard, and the park were filled with people, and at the very moment when the officers of the law were pursuing their investigations? And yet, Arsène Lupin had given her his solemn promise. It will be exactly as he said, thought she, so deeply was she impressed with the authority, energy, and assurance of that remarkable man. To her it no longer assumed the form of a miracle, but, on the contrary, a natural incident that must occur in the ordinary course of events. She blushed and turned her head. Three o'clock. The great clock struck slowly. One, two, three. Horace Velmont took out his watch, glanced at the clock, then returned the watch to his pocket. A few seconds passed in silence, and then the crowd in the courtyard parted to give passage to two wagons that had just entered the park gate, each drawn by two horses. They were army wagons, such as are used for the transportation of provisions, tents, and other necessary military stores. They stopped in front of the main entrance, and a commissary sergeant leapt from one of the wagons and inquired for Monsieur de Vannes. A moment later, that gentleman emerged from the house, descended the steps, and under the canvas covers of the wagons beheld his furniture, pictures, and ornaments carefully packaged and arranged. When questioned, the sergeant produced an order that he had received from the officer of the day. By that order, the second company of the 4th Battalion were commanded to proceed to the crossroads of Alleux in the forest of Arques, gather up the furniture and other articles deposited there, and deliver same to Monsieur Georges de Vannes, owner of the Tubermenil Castle, at three o'clock. Signed, Colonel Beauvel. At the crossroads, explained the sergeant, we found everything ready, lying on the grass, guarded by some passers-by. It seemed very strange, but the order was imperative. One of the officers examined the signature. He declared it a forgery, but a clever imitation. The wagons were unloaded, and the goods restored to their proper places in the castle. During this commotion, Nelly had remained alone at the extreme end of the terrace, absorbed by confused and distracted thoughts. Suddenly she observed Velmont approaching her. She would have avoided him, but the balustrade that surrounded the terrace cut off her retreat. She was cornered. She could not move. A gleam of sunshine passing through the scant foliage of a bamboo lighted up her beautiful golden hair. Someone spoke to her in a low voice. "'Have I not kept my promise?' Arsène Lupin stood close to her. No one else was near. He repeated in a calm, soft voice, 
have I not kept my promise? He expected a word of thanks, or at least some slight movement that would betray her interest in the fulfillment of his promise, but she remained silent. Her scornful attitude annoyed Arsène Lupin, and he realized the vast distance that separated him from Miss Nelly, now that she had learned the truth. He would gladly have justified himself in her eyes, or at least pleaded extenuating circumstances, but he perceived the absurdity and futility of such an attempt. Finally, dominated by a surging flood of memories, he murmured, Oh, how long ago that was! You remember the long hours on the deck of the Provence. Then you carried a rose in your hand, a white rose like the one you carry today. I asked you for it. You pretended you did not hear me. After you had gone away, I found the rose, forgotten, no doubt, and I kept it. She made no reply. She seemed to be far away. He continued, In memory of those happy hours, forget what you have learned since. Separate the past from the present. Do not regard me as the man you saw last night, but look at me, if only for a moment, as you did in those far-off days when I was Bernard d'Andrézy for a short time. Will you, please? She raised her eyes and looked at him as he had requested. Then, without saying a word, she pointed to a ring he was wearing on his forefinger. Only the ring was visible, but the setting, which was turned toward the palm of his hand, consisted of a magnificent ruby. Arsène Lupin blushed. The ring belonged to Georges de Vannes. He smiled bitterly and said, "'You are right. Nothing can be changed. Arsène Lupin is now and always will be Arsène Lupin.' To you, he cannot be even so much as a memory. Pardon me, I should have known that any attention I may now offer you is simply an insult. Forgive me. He stepped aside, hat in hand. Nellie passed before him. He was inclined to detain her and beseech her forgiveness. But his courage failed, and he contented himself by following her with his eyes, as he had done when she descended the gangway to the pier at New York. She mounted the steps leading to the door, and disappeared within the house. He saw her no more. A cloud obscured the sun. Arsène Lupin stood watching the imprints of her tiny feet in the sand. Suddenly he gave a start. Upon the box which contained the bamboo, beside which Nellie had been standing, he saw the rose, the white rose which he had desired, but dared not ask for. Forgotten, no doubt, it also. But how? Designedly or through distraction? He seized it eagerly. Some of its petals fell to the ground. He picked them up one by one, like precious relics. Come, he said to himself, I have nothing more to do here. I must think of my safety before Sherlock Holmes arrives. The park was deserted, but some gendarmes were stationed at the park gate. He entered a grove of pine trees, leapt over the wall, and as a shortcut to the railroad station, followed a path across the fields. After walking about ten minutes, he arrived at a spot where the road grew narrower and ran between two steep banks. In this ravine he met a man travelling in the opposite direction. It was a man about fifty years of age, tall, smooth-shaven, and wearing clothes of a foreign cut. He carried a heavy cane, and a small satchel was strapped across his shoulder, when they met, the stranger spoke with a slight English accent. "'Excuse me, monsieur, is this the way to the castle?' "'Yes, monsieur, straight ahead, and turn to the left when you come to the wall. They are expecting you.' "'Ah! Oh. Yes, my friend Devan told us last night that you were coming, and I am delighted to be the first to welcome you. Sherlock Holmes has no more ardent admirer than myself.' There was a touch of irony in his voice that he quickly regretted, for Sherlock Holmes scrutinized him from head to foot with such a keen, penetrating eye that Arsène Lupin experienced the sensation of being seized, imprisoned, and registered by that look more thoroughly and precisely than he had ever been by a camera. My negative is being taken now, he thought, and it will be useless to use a disguise with that man. He would look right through it. But I wonder, has he recognized me? 
They bowed to each other as if about to part, but at that moment they heard a sound of horses' feet, accompanied by a clinking of steel. It was the gendarme. The two men were obliged to draw back against the embankment amongst the bushes to avoid the horses. The gendarme passed by, but as they followed each other at a considerable distance, they were several minutes in doing so, and Lupin was thinking, "'It all depends on that question. Has he recognized me? If so, he will probably take advantage of the opportunity. It is a trying situation.' When the last horseman had passed, Sherlock Holmes stepped forth and brushed the dust from his clothes. Then, for a moment, he and Arsène Lupin gazed at each other, and if a person could have seen them at that moment, it would have been an interesting sight, and memorable as the first meeting of two remarkable men, so strange, so powerfully equipped, both of superior quality and destined by fate, through their peculiar attributes, to hurl themselves one at the other like two equal forces that nature opposes one against the other in the realms of space. Then the Englishman said, Thank you, monsieur. They parted. Lupin went toward the railway station, and Sherlock Holmes continued on his way to the castle. The local officers had given up the investigation after several hours of fruitless efforts, and the people at the castle were awaiting the arrival of the English detective with a lively curiosity. At first sight, they were a little disappointed on account of his commonplace appearance, which differed so greatly from the pictures they had formed of him in their own minds. He did not in any way resemble the romantic hero, the mysterious and diabolical personage that the name of Sherlock Holmes had evoked in their imaginations. However, M. Devanne exclaimed with much gusto, "'Ah, oh, monsieur, you are here! I am delighted to see you. It is a long-deferred pleasure. Really, I scarcely regret what has happened, since it affords me the opportunity to meet you. But how did you come?' "'By the train. But I sent my automobile to meet you at the station.' "'An official reception, eh? With music and fireworks? Oh, no, not for me.' "'That is not the way I do business,' grumbled the Englishman. This speech disconcerted Devan, who replied with a forced smile, "'Fortunately, the business has been greatly simplified since I wrote to you.' "'In what way?' "'The robbery took place last night.' "'If you had not announced my intended visit, it is probable the robbery would not have been committed last night.' "'When, then?' "'Tomorrow or some other day.' And in that case, Lupin would have been trapped, said the detective. And my furniture would not have been carried away. Ah, but my goods are here. They were brought back at three o'clock. By Lupin. By two army wagons. Sherlock Holmes put on his cap and adjusted his satchel. Devanne exclaimed anxiously, But, monsieur, what are you going to do? I am going home. Why? Your goods have been returned. Arsène Lupin is far away. There is nothing for me to do. Yes, there is. I need your assistance. What happened yesterday may happen again tomorrow, as we do not know how he entered, or how he escaped, or why a few hours later he returned the goods. Ah, oh, you don't know. The idea of a problem to be solved quickened the interest of Sherlock Holmes. Very well, let us make a search, at once, and alone if possible. Devanne understood and conducted the Englishman to the salon. In a dry, crisp voice, in sentences that seemed to have been prepared in advance, Holmes asked a number of questions about the events of the preceding evening, and inquired also concerning the guests and the members of the household. Then he examined the two volumes of the Chronique, compared the plans of the subterranean passage, requested a repetition of the sentences discovered by Father Gelli, and then asked, "'Was yesterday the first time you have spoken those two sentences to anyone?' "'Yes.' "'You had never communicated them to Horace Velmont?' "'No.' "'Well, order the automobile. I must leave in an hour.' "'In an hour?' "'Yes, within that time, Arsène Lupin solved a problem that you placed before him.' "'I... Placed before him. Yes, Arsène Lupin or Horace Velmont, same thing. 
I thought so. Oh, the scoundrel! Now let us see, said Holmes. Last night at ten o'clock you furnished Lupin with the information that he lacked, and that he had been seeking for many weeks. During the night he found time to solve the problem, collect his men, and rob the castle. I shall be quite as expeditious. He walked from end to end of the room, in deep thought, then sat down, crossed his long legs, and closed his eyes. Devan waited, quite embarrassed. Thought he, is the man asleep, or is he only meditating? However, he left the room to give some orders, and when he returned, he found the detective on his knees, scrutinizing the carpet at the foot of the stairs in the gallery. "'What is it?' he inquired. "'Look, there, spots from a candle.' "'You are right, and quite fresh. "'And you will also find them at the top of the stairs, "'and around the cabinet that Arsène Lupin broke into, "'and from which he took the bibelots "'that he afterward placed in this armchair.' "'What do you conclude from that?' "'Nothing. "'These facts would doubtless explain the cause for the restitution.' but that is a side issue that I cannot wait to investigate. The main question is the secret passage. First, tell me, is there a chapel some two or three hundred meters from the castle? Yes, a ruined chapel, containing the tomb of Duke Rollo. Tell your chauffeur to wait for us near that chapel. My chauffeur hasn't returned. If he had, they would have informed me. Do you think the secret passage runs to the chapel? What reason have... I would ask you, monsieur, interrupted the detective, to furnish me with a ladder and a lantern. What? Do you require a ladder and a lantern? Certainly, or I shouldn't have asked for them. Devan, somewhat disconcerted by this crude logic, rang the bell. The two articles were given with the sternness and precision of military commands. Place the ladder against the bookcase, to the left of the word Tibermenil. Devan placed the ladder as directed, and the Englishman continued, "'More to the left. To the right. There. Now climb up. All the letters are in relief, aren't they?' "'Yes.' First, turn the letter I one way or the other.' "'Which one? There are two of them.' "'The first one.' Devan took hold of the letter and exclaimed, "'Oh, yes, it turns toward the right. Who told you that?' Sherlock Holmes did not reply to the question, but continued his directions. Now take the letter B, move it back and forth as you would a bolt. Devan did so, and to his great surprise it produced a clicking sound. Quite right, said Holmes. Now we will go to the other end of the word Tibermenil. Try the letter I, and see if it will open like a wicket. With a certain degree of solemnity, Devan seized the letter. It opened, but Devan fell from the ladder, for the entire section of the bookcase, lying between the first and last letters of the words, turned on a picot and disclosed the subterranean passage. Sherlock Holmes said coolly, "'You are not hurt.' "'No, no,' said Devan, as he rose to his feet. "'Not hurt, only bewildered. "'I can't understand how those letters turn. "'The secret passage opens.' Certainly. Doesn't that agree exactly with the formula given by Sully? Turn one eye on the bee that shakes, the other eye will lead to God. But Louis the Sixteenth asked Devan. Louis the Sixteenth was a clever locksmith. I have read a book he wrote about combination locks. It was a good idea on the part of the owner of Tibermenil to show His Majesty a clever bit of mechanism. As an aid to his memory, the king wrote three, four, eleven that is to say, the third, fourth, and eleventh letters of the word. Exactly, I understand that. It explains how Lupin got out of the room, but it does not explain how he entered, and it is certain he came from the outside. Sherlock Holmes lighted his lantern and stepped into the passage. Look, all the mechanism is exposed here, like the works of a clock, and the reverse side of the letters can be reached. Lupin worked the combination from this side, that is all. What proof is there of that? Proof? Why, look at that puddle of oil. Lupin foresaw that the wheels would require oiling. Did he know about the other entrance? As well as I know it, said Holmes. Follow me. 
into that dark passage? Are you afraid? No, but are you sure you can find the way out? With my eyes closed. At first they descended twelve steps, then twelve more, and farther on two other flights of twelve steps each. Then they walked through a long passageway, the brick walls of which showed the marks of successive restorations, and in spots were dripping with water. The earth also was very damp. We are passing under the pond, said Devan, somewhat nervously. At last they came to a stairway of twelve steps, followed by three others of twelve steps each, which they mounted with difficulty, and then found themselves in a small cavity cut in the rock. They could go no further. Juice, muttered Holmes. Nothing but bare walls. This is provoking. Let us go back, said Devan. I have seen enough to satisfy me. But the Englishman raised his eye and uttered a sigh of relief. There he saw the same mechanism and the same word as before. He had merely to work the three letters. He did so, and a block of granite swung out of place. On the other side, this granite block formed the tombstone of Duke Rollo, and the word Tibermenil was engraved on it in relief. Now they were in the little ruined chapel, and the detective said, The other eye leads to God, that means to the chapel. It is marvellous, exclaimed Devan, amazed at the clairvoyance and vivacity of the Englishman. Can it be possible that those few words were sufficient for you? declared Holmes. They weren't even necessary. In the chart in the book of the National Library, the drawing terminates at the left, as you know, in a circle, and at the right, as you do not know, in a cross. Now that cross must refer to the chapel in which we now stand. Poor Devan could not believe his ears. It was all so new, so novel to him. He exclaimed, It is incredible, miraculous, and yet of a childish simplicity. How is it that no one else has ever solved the mystery? Because no one has ever united the essential elements, that is to say, the two books and the two sentences. No one but Arsène Lupin and myself. But Father Jolie and I knew all about those things, and likewise. Holmes smiled and said, Monsieur Devan, everybody cannot solve riddles. I have been trying for ten years to accomplish what you did in ten minutes. I am used to it. They emerged from the chapel and found an automobile. Ah, there's an auto waiting for us. Yes, it is mine, said Devan. Yours? You said your chauffeur hadn't returned. They approached the machine, and Monsieur Devan questioned the chauffeur. Edouard, who gave you orders to come here? Why, it was Monsieur Velmont. Monsieur Velmont? Did you meet him? Near the railway station, and he told me to come to the chapel. Come to the chapel? What for? To wait for you, monsieur, and your friend. Devan and Holmes exchanged looks, and Monsieur Devan said, He knew the mystery would be a simple one for you. It is a delicate compliment. A smile of satisfaction lighted up the detective's serious features for a moment. The compliment pleased him. He shook his head as he said, A clever man. I knew that when I saw him. Have you seen him? I met him a short time ago, on my way from the station. And you knew it was Horace Velmont? I mean, Arsène Lupin? That is right. I wonder how it came... No, but I supposed it was from a certain ironical speech he made. And you allowed him to escape? Of course I did, and yet I had everything on my side, such as five gendarmes who passed us. Sacre bleu! cried Devan. You should have taken advantage of the opportunity. Really, monsieur, said the Englishman haughtily, when I encounter an adversary like Arsène Lupin, I do not take advantage of chance opportunities. I create them. But time pressed, and since Lupin had been so kind as to send the automobile, they resolved to profit by it. They seated themselves in the comfortable limousine. Edouard took his place at the wheel, and away they went toward the railway station. Suddenly, Devan's eyes fell upon a small package in one of the pockets of the carriage. Ah, oh, what is that? A package? Whose is it? Why, it is for you. For me? Yes, it is addressed Sherlock Holmes from Arsène Lupin. 
the Englishman took the package, opened it, and found that it contained a watch. Ah! <sighs> he exclaimed with an angry gesture. A watch, said Devanne. How did it come there? The detective did not reply. Oh, it is your watch! Arsène Lupin returns your watch! But in order to return it, he must have taken it. Ah, oh, I see! He took your watch! That is a good one! Sherlock Holmes's watch stolen by Arsène Lupin! Monsieur, that is funny! Really, you must excuse me! I can't help it! He roared with laughter, unable to control himself, after which he said, in a tone of earnest conviction, A clever man, indeed! The Englishman never moved a muscle. On the way to Dieppe he never spoke a word, but fixed his gaze on the flying landscape. His silence was terrible, unfathomable, more violent than the wildest rage. At the railway station he spoke calmly, but in a voice that impressed one, with the vast energy and will-power of that famous man. He said, Yes, he is a clever man, but some day I shall have the pleasure of placing on his shoulder the hand I now offer to you, Monsieur de Vannes. And I believe that Arsène Lupin and Sherlock Holmes will meet again some day. Yes, the world is too small. We will meet. We must meet. And then... End of chapter 9 End of the Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc Read by Kate Barrett Thank you for listening. This has been Oleander Book Club, 1130 AM, Oleander, Oregon. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.